Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Welcome to a special edition of Secrets of Wealthy Women. We're looking back on some of the conversations that are inspiring women to take control of their finances, careers, and ambitions to reach their ultimate success. Despite having her right leg amputated as a child, Bonnie St. John became the first African-American to win medals in Winter Olympic competition as a ski racer. She explains how adversity taught her the keys to success and how women can find resilience to forge ahead through any of life's challenges. So, Bonnie, you were raised by a single mom who often didn't have money left at the end of the month. How did that experience shape your view of money? Well, I don't take anything for granted. I'm very appreciative. I'm very hardworking. I'm very inventive. And uh, I, you know, use a lot of elbow grease. Your leg was amputated when you were a child. You realized you could either cringe and hide or learn to meet the insults and gazes of other people. How did you decide what to do? I don't know. I mean, I think you can sit in a corner and feel sorry for yourself. And you can do that for a while. And I guess I got tired of it. <laughs> So I got out of the chair and said, let me go do something. And, you know, it wasn't just the leg. I, I had a tough childhood. My father left when my mother was pregnant with me. I, she remarried an abusive man. I was, I, was, I was sexually abused for years when I was a child. Um, there was a lot of hard stuff in my childhood. And so for me, it was, I want to create a better life. I could sit down and just give up or I can go out and create something better. Where did you get that vision from, though, as a child? Well, my mother had pulled herself up from her bootstraps, and she'd have had a tough time. She also did a lot of trying to stay positive and fighting her own demons. And so that's a legacy I got from her was that we can choose positivity and that you can work at it. You go to the gym to make your muscles stronger. You can read positive books. You can, you know, say positive things. You can exercise your positivity. So one of the books I wrote is Live Your Joy, which was really a, about that. So some people said, Bonnie, you should be an axe murderer. You know, you had such a horrible childhood. But uh, I, I, so I wrote Live Your Joy in answer to that is to say, here's 10 things I learned about how to be positive no matter what. You tell a story of a nurse who helped push you through pain when you were a child. Can you tell us about that experience? Well, after I had my leg amputated, you, you don't just walk out and get a size six leg. You know, they have to make a custom leg for you. And you have to be able to bear weight. So my, my stump, you know, where my leg was amputated, you have to toughen up the end of your stump so you can stand on it. And one of the therapies I had to do was they piled up books in a pile and put a bathroom scale on top. And a nurse would, you know, stand beside me and say, here, push on the scale with your stump. Three pounds isn't enough. Push, push harder. And I was crying. <laughs> I think if I was that nurse sitting there with a five-year-old girl who's crying and in pain, I'd be like, cookie break. <laughs> and what was so fabulous is, you know, she pushed me 
through pain to toughen myself up. And that's such a great life lesson is that you have to get through the hard stuff. And everybody has different things. You know, other kids didn't have to push on a scale, but, you know, maybe they weren't good at math. I was good at math. You know, we all have our own thing that we have to push through. But what I realized later in life is as a child, there are people to push you. There are teachers, there are coaches, there are parents. But as an adult, we don't get pushed beyond our abilities unless we give someone permission. And so I look for people like that nurse to bring into my life who are going to push me because I have a lot of willpower. Sure, I'm tough, but I can only go so far on my own steam. But when I get other people to push me harder, I can break through. Who are you looking to to push you? Um, gosh, in different areas, you know, every day I travel a lot and I'm in restaurants all the time. So uh, I need to worry about my health and my weight. And so I I have I'm going through a process of working with a trainer, you know, and having somebody to push me on that side. But on the business growth side as well is we're going through an evolution to scale up to a new level. And I've got several different people that are pushing me in different ways to to operate at a higher level. How can women know if they should push through pain or give up? Wow, that's an interesting question. I um, I was reflecting on my life and thinking about how I made decisions like that. And I, I came up with a metaphor of saying I've, I've always had a portfolio of goals. So a lot of people will say, you know, burn the boats behind you, never give up. And that's really not been my experience of how I operate. But another way to think of it is you wouldn't put all your investment in one basket. You know, you diversify your portfolio because some things work, some things don't. You're going to put more in this, get less of that. You're going to respond to the market. Mm -hmm. So you can do the same thing with your goals and dreams. And you can have different things that you're working on and say, well, this is working, so I'll do more of it. Or this isn't working, so I'll stop. So it's not like quitting, like laying down and dying. It's just saying, I'm going to eliminate that out of my portfolio because it's not working. Does that answer your question? I think so. You later went on to become one of the first African-American women to win a medal in the Winter Olympics. How did you discover your passion for skiing? A friend of mine in high school invited me to go skiing with her family. And I remember she took a piece of notebook paper and made a little certificate out of notebook paper for my birthday and, and gave it to me. My birthday's in November. But then I had to find a way to, to get myself organized to go with her over Christmas vacation. So I had to find the special equipment for a one-legged skier. Um, it, it was really difficult. And uh, and then when we went out the first time, I kept falling and falling. And her and her brothers took turns picking me up. And uh, it, it was really hard to start. You won the bronze medal in the Olympics, but you realized there was one key difference between you and the woman who won the gold. What was that? Well, I was in the slalom race, and uh, I was the third-ranked one-legged woman in the United States. So nobody expected me to beat my teammates, never mind anybody else. So when I came down the first run of the slalom in the Paralympics in Innsbruck, Austria, and my time was in first place, it was an upset. But I had trained all summer on a glacier with two-legged skiers. I had just outworked everybody. So I, I, I surprised everybody. So I'm in first place after the first run, but it takes two runs to win the medal. So in the second run, 
uh, it's a different course. Anybody who doesn't ski race may not know this. It's not the same course all the time. It's a totally different course because the snow gets all chewed up on the first run. So it's a new course. So on the second course, I'm waiting, second run, I'm waiting my turn and other women are going down and they radio up from the bottom and tell us that women are crashing. So on this new course we haven't skied before, there's this dangerous icy spot and women are crashing. So when it gets to be my turn, I'm, I'm thinking no heroics. You know, if I just stay standing and don't crash like the other women, I can win the gold because I'm in first place. So I, I, the race official counts down three, two, one, go. I break out of the starting gate. I'm hitting the, the poles and I get to where I can see the finish line. I think I've made it. And that's when I hit that dangerous icy spot. And I, I ski on one leg. I don't wear my prosthesis when I'm skiing. So I tried to hold on to my edge. I tried to stay standing. I couldn't do it. I fell on my rear end. I was number one in the world. And then I'm sitting in the snow. So, you know, at that moment, I just wanted to disappear, not to face my mom, my sponsors, everything. But I grabbed my equipment. I got over the finish line. And when the dust cleared, it turned out that the uh, the I was in third place. So I got to go to the award ceremony, have the bronze medal put around my neck. And I thought about it later. And I thought, wow, you know, I could have won the gold. I should have won the gold. And the woman who won, it wasn't because she didn't fall on that icy spot. She also fell and got up. Now, I skied. I was the fastest skier when nothing went wrong. I was the better skier. How did she beat me? She couldn't ski faster than me. She got up faster than me. So I was actually quoted on a Starbucks cup. They did a campaign where they put quotes on Starbucks cups, and it said, people fall down, winners get up, but the gold medal winner is just the person who gets up the fastest. Susie Orman is a renowned personal finance guru. As an internationally known television personality, she explains why it remains her life's passion to help women take control of their money. After being defrauded by a financial advisor, you later became one. How come? (laughs) Well, that's a great story. So here I am, and after... You know, going in the University of Illinois. Now I head out with my girlfriend and two other women, and we end up in Berkeley, California. And I land a job at the Buttercup Bakery on College in Alcatraz, and I remained a waitress there for seven years, making four hundred dollars a month until I was essentially thirty years of age. And then I had this dream of wow, I've made these people so much money because on my ideas, they went from this tiny little restaurant takeout place when I started with them to almost owning the whole block. All on my ideas. I would always say, let's do this. Let's try that. Why don't, bam. So then I realized, oh my God, I can do this. Look what I did for somebody else. I can do this. But I didn't have any money. There was no way I could open up a restaurant. And my parents, my mom and dad, had absolutely no money. So they couldn't give me the money to do that. So I was telling somebody about this, one of the people I had waited on, Fred Hasbrook, for all those seven years. Fred told all the customers I had waited on. And they gave me $50,000 to open up my own restaurant, but told me to take the money down to Merrill Lynch and put it in a money market account until I could open up my own restaurant. I didn't know what a Merrill Lynch was. I didn't know what a money market account was. They explained all that to me. Walk into Merrill Lynch. I'm assigned the broker of the day. His name was Randy. And I told him everything, what the money was for, blah, blah, that it wasn't my money, that this was a loan from all these people. If I could pay it back, they didn't care. But if I could, they would like if I could. And so he said, how would you like to make a quick $100 a week? And I was like, Randy, that's like what more than I make as a waitress, really? He said, just sign here on the bottom line of all these 
blank papers. I didn't know better. I signed on the bottom line. They were options papers. He filled out all of the information on those papers, qualifying me to buy, put, sell, to trade options. To make a very long story short, within three months, all $50,000 was lost. Now I didn't know what to do because I knew that the people who gave me that money, even though they said I never had to pay them back, it was a lot of money for them. $1,000 here, $500 here. These were all workers. These were people who didn't have money. So I thought, I know I can be a broker. They just make you broker. And for some reason, I got dressed in my red and white striped sassoon pants, my blue silk shirt, my white cowboy boots, which I still wear, see, cowboy boots to this day. And I walked into Merrill Lynch wanting a job. And all of a sudden, I find myself in the manager's office, who now this is 1980, and they have to hire me, in their opinion, to fill affirmative action. They didn't have any women in that office at that time. But I was told women belong barefoot and pregnant. Peter Sansevero was the name of the manager who said that to me. And, um, and I said to him, all right, how much are you going to pay me to make me pregnant? And he said, 1500 a month. And I just looked at him and he said, but here's the catch, Miss Orman. I will hire you, but I will fire you in six months. And I went, in my head, $1,500 a month for six months is $9,000. It'd take me two years to make that at the Buttercup Bakery. Great. And again, so I'm hired. Now I'm finding out that what my broker did was illegal with the know your customer rule. So then again, as I was about to say, to make a long story short, through the help of some other friends who worked for Merrill Lynch, the head of operations at the time, told me that I should sue. And here was the name of a lawyer that will take the case on contingency, which I didn't know what that was either. And what I didn't know is because I sued them, they couldn't fire me. By the time it came to court, I was their number six producing broker in that office. A new manager came in. He looked at it, and he went, this is crazy. He gave me all $50,000 back, plus 18% interest at the time, because that is what interest rates were back then. So that's how I became a stockbroker, how I became a voice for all the negligence and abuse that goes on with financial advisors and stockbrokers and in the financial industry, in my opinion, for and the banking industry for everyday little consumers. I don't care if you have millions of dollars, fine, good for you. But if all you have to your name is $3,000, you, you can't lose it. Losing $3,000 for somebody would be more than me losing $30 million on the spot right now. If I lost $30 million right now, it would not affect my life at all. So when you don't have money, you need an advocate, and nobody cares. And that's how I started to become the Susie Orman that you see today. Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. <laughs> Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but prediabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihadprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. Welcome back to a special edition of Secrets of Wealthy Women, 
We're listening to some of the leading women in their field share stories of how they found their way to ultimate success. Melissa Beneshai is president and chief product officer of Baked by Melissa, a nationally known cupcake business famous for its bite-sized cupcakes. She discusses how getting fired from a corporate job in her 20s drove her to create her own cupcake empire. So Melissa, when you were a child, what would your dad say to you every morning in the car? My dad drove me to school every day growing up, and he would tell me, I'm smart, I'm capable, I can do anything I set my mind to. What kind of impact did that have on you? At the time, I thought it was silly, and I would, like, mouth the words right next to him in a mocking sort of way. But I guess it gave me confidence. And it also just shows the type of parents that I had. I had two parents who empowered both my brother and I to do anything and everything we set our mind to. And when you have two parents that encourage you every single day to do whatever it is that you want, um, it gives you a sense of confidence and you believe it. And without those two figures and my brother, who also encouraged me to do everything and anything I set my mind to, including Start Baked by Melissa, we did it together, you know, I definitely wouldn't be here. And I think that's one of the best lessons I've learned from my parents. But of course, I've learned so much from them. Well, I know your dad was an entrepreneur, too. So what did he teach you? So my dad comes from my whole family is very entrepreneurial. And he runs the company that my grandfather founded with his brother, actually. I know my brother particularly was always fascinated by the story of how my grandfather started that business. And my brother started many businesses. And I always wanted to go into business with my brother. And I love cupcakes. So the day I was fired, I ran to my brother's office crying. And he said, go home, bake your cupcakes. We'll start a business together. And I did. I went home. Instead of going home and feeling sorry for myself, like most people would probably do, I knew I needed to control the... like. If you're not taking control of the way that you feel, then nobody can make you happy. So I went home and I did what made me happy. I baked cupcakes. I sent them into work with my best friend's little sister the very next day who was interning at a PR firm. The owner of the PR firm tried the product and loved it, put me in touch with her caterer. And the caterer from this big PR agency in Manhattan called me in for a tasting the very next day. And that's really how we started Baked by Melissa. We started by doing events with this caterer. And for our very first event, we had a website, bakedbymelissa.com, where you could order 100 cupcakes or more to be delivered by me from my apartment using the subway. And you pay with PayPal, so e-commerce from day one. And we had business cards that I would put out in front of the product at the events. So when people saw these beautiful and delicious bite-sized cupcakes that didn't exist before. And I took something that everyone already loved and made it even cuter, which is, you know, pretty awesome. They would take a business card that would drive them to the website and then they can order for their party or whatever. What advice do you have for women who get fired? You can do anything. (laughs) But really, it's probably the best thing that ever happened to you. The day that I was fired, I felt that it wasn't fair. Like, anyone would. It actually was fair. I I wasn't doing the best job. I wasn't passionate about the work I was doing. And they did me a favor. Obviously, it's hard to see that when you're feeling emotional, which is why, you know, whenever you're feeling emotional, it's good to just chill out and do something else. 
other than think about what's going on, like bake cupcakes or surround yourself with people who love you and support you and just get your mind off of it. I did that and started Baked by Melissa, but obviously it took a lot of hard work. And and really, I guess, you know, everything happens for a reason. And sometimes it's hard to remember that. And yes, the story that I just told sounds like this Cinderella story. And I'm so lucky with the course of events. A, it took a lot of hard work. And it didn't happen. It did happen rather quickly. But I took advantage of every opportunity that came my way. And I had a certain attitude towards life and the things that were happening to me. I knew I had the chance to do what I love every day. And I worked for it. And I believe today, 10 years later, that it's that attitude of taking challenging situations and and turning them into opportunities and always looking for the bright side. That attitude is what is necessary for success. And that's the attitude we still have today at Baked by Melissa. You speak so openly about getting fired and it's part of your story. Is that difficult to do sometimes though? Because that's sort of admitting a negative thing that happened. Oh, hell no. I mean, I think part of my charm <laughs> is that I, um, I'm, I'm real and I feel very fortunate to be in my position. And I think the more I can share the reality of how I got to where I am today, the more I can empower other men and women to go after their dreams. The world needs more of that, especially today. You can do anything. I am proof of that. You surround yourself with people who love you and support you. First and foremost, you work your tush off with great persistence and positivity, and you could do anything. What sacrifices do you have to make? Know your priorities in life, whether you're starting your own business or just like in life. Like my top most priority when we started Baked by Melissa was Baked by Melissa is baked by Melissa today. And I also have a family today. So those are my two top priorities. I know that. And everything I do is with that in mind. Yeah, I mean, sacrifices when we started the company and even today include like not seeing my friends so much, you know, making time to be at home with my daughter. I wake up super early so I could be with her in the morning because I'm not always home when she gets home from school or daycare. She's like two. And just trying to figure out that balance. I have an amazing husband who supports me and balances me and is there a lot to when I'm not. But there are all different types of sacrifices and it's okay. Like no matter what you do, entrepreneur, male, female, in order to be successful, you have to be willing to make sacrifices. How did you decide to make the cupcakes mini? Well, I used to eat two giant cupcakes a day. I used to eat a lot of cupcakes. I worked in advertising first and foremost, and people send you things all the time. So there were always sweets in the office. But I also walked home every day from, um, I I was working in the Google building in Chelsea, and I lived in Murray Hill, and there's this deli called Clover Deli on 34th and 2nd, which was right across the street from my apartment at the time. And they had these like giant cupcakes, and I used to get two before I went home. I would stop there. They like knew me by name. Um, Because I could never decide between the chocolate and vanilla. And I would always say, like, I'll just eat half, but nope, ate both. So making the cupcakes just a bite, A, gave us, like, a niche, like, something, a way to be different that really differentiated our product from everyone else. And it allows you to try every flavor. And for me, I mean, I... 
Uh, Melissa baked by Melissa. So when I go into a bakery, I can order one of each, and it's my job. But for everyone else, you could go into any baked by Melissa store or visit bakedbymelissa.com and order all of the flavors, and you can try them all, and you don't have to feel guilty about it because everything's under 50 calories, and we only use the most delicious ingredients. Thanks for listening to a special edition of Secrets of Wealthy Women. Join us for future episodes featuring the leading female leaders and their road to success. This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos. John Wardock is the executive producer of WSJ Podcasts. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women.